Hello, welcome back to another episode of Crowd Cast. My name is Andrew Barnett. I hope this episode finds you well. Uh, thank you very much for joining me for another week. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, if you're listening to a few of them and you're enjoying it, feel free to uh, get on iTunes and um, rate and review it. Uh, apparently that helps with something. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what it helps with, but um, yeah, if if you're inc- if you're that way inclined, if you're the kind of person that uh, rates and reviews things, feel free to rate and review it. Uh, if you're not that way inclined, if you're just the kind of person who likes to listen passively, then feel free to keep listening. Um, who am I to tell you what to do? Uh, this week's episode. This week, I've uh, got a great episode for you. I sat down with uh, a mate of mine, a gentleman by the name of David Smeet. Uh, Dave is a guy I met through comedy and uh, he's a great comedian but uh, other than that he's also uh, a really interesting guy, he's a writer, a journalist and um, and a South African born gentleman. Uh, no, he's had a, has, had a, has had a pretty interesting life and um, he, yeah, so we had a really good chat. We, we chatted a little bit at the start about um, the state of the media basically which was interesting uh, getting his point of view as a journalist on where things are at and uh, where where we're uh, going potentially with the uh, with the whole citizen journalism thing, um, but then we just talked some garbage towards the end. We also uh, chatted a little bit about what it was like for him to. What, why am I telling you this? You can just listen to the episode. Um, yeah, this, this is ridiculous. All right, let's just get into it then. Please enjoy episode eighteen with David Smith. So, uh, new episode. G'day, buddy. What's your name? Uh, David Smeet here. David Smeet. And uh, what do you do, Dave? I work as a funny writer for magazines and newspapers as well as do stand-up. So, I started writing humorous articles for the page and then migrated to the stage. I'd been doing that for about oh, a good uh, almost 20 years oh, wow. before I actually did stand-up. So, I, I started writing... Humorous articles when I was at uni, around 18. Yep. And then I did my first ever stand-up gig when I was 38. Oh, wow. That's a, yeah, so that's a, that's a, late, um, a late entry, I suppose. So, yeah, but it was a bit of a, a weird kind of journey there. I, uh, I'd always loved stand-up uh, and, and wrote a book about Australian comedy in 1999 called Boom Boom. And uh, I got to the point where I was writing a whole book... Um, you know, 90,000 words just so I could go to a writer's festival and tell jokes into a microphone. And <laughs> There's got to be an easy way to do yeah, this. Yeah, there had to be an easier way. So uh, luckily I'm a, I, I'm a uh, Adam Hills, uh, who a lot of your listeners would know, is a, is a close mate of mine and yep. we went to uni together and he basically said, look, I'm tired of having this conversation with you about wanting to try stand-up. I've organised you a gig. It was at the uh, the local in Melbourne, which is an amazing room, and people should definitely go there. It's still one of the friendliest rooms in Australia. He said, no one will know you in the pub. You've got an, uh, a month's notice to write five minutes of material, and if you die in the ass, you'll know whether or not you want to do it again. Yes. So, uh, And it was lovely. Uh, had a great time, and uh, so ten years later, here I am. That is the great litmus test, isn't it? The um, The wanting to get up after you die in the ass. Yeah, although you know, and the first gig was lovely because I didn't die in the ass. And but the second gig, as will most comedians do, uh, was yep. awful. It was just you know, and the the third and the fourth were probably that bad too. 
but it is the great litmus test of going, am I cut out for this? Because in the early days, there are so many more failures than successes. Oh, yeah. And it's that thing of, yeah, there's no better feeling than doing well on stage. But it's, there's no worse feeling than dying. Oh, especially when you've travelled. You know, you've got <laughs> the gigs 40 minutes away. You've got five minutes of stage time and you've driven. So it's 80 minutes of travelling time for five minutes of stage time and it just didn't work for whatever reason. You know, the gags weren't there or the rapport with the audience wasn't there or whatever it was. And uh, you're just driving home going... What am I doing here? What, you know, and you know, and that still happens. And I, and I defy any comic to t- tell you that it never happens to them anymore. Oh, mate, I still get that. I, I get often before gigs, like especially if I've had any time off between yeah. gigs. Um, we were just talking about. I just had um, I had a bit of a break over Christmas, as, as you were just saying you did um, before we heated the mics up, as it were. Um, but I, I had a, my first gig in a couple of weeks on the weekend, and driving down i was i had that feeling like do i even do this what what do i say when i do this like i couldn't i just yeah. didn't feel like i did comedy yeah and and it's that thing about match fitness that the mm. comics often talk about i don't know if, if people who uh who who are punters don't realize how it, it is something you need to train at and your skills drop off if you haven't done it for a while oh massively uh, you can see uh the people who've just come out of festivals for example are always so sharp yeah they hate the world but they're very sharp yeah exactly they're they're, they're uh they're bitter but geez they're good at it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly Oh, so you said you went to uni um, and you started writing funny articles at uni. Where'd you go to uni? I went to Macquarie Uni in Sydney. Yep. Uh, did a communications degree. Nice. Which, uh, which you know, it, it I sounds... I half started one of those. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, every comedian did. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's funny, it's, it, sounds quite, uh, it, it sounds quite impressive. But in, in truth, it was three years of, of watching French films and, uh, and drinking red wine and trying to get women to sleep with me by using the word postmodern out of context. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, remember, I remember when I started mine, I remember doing um, uh, film study. Like you, you'd watch a film each week and then talk about it in the next lecture. It was just... It in seemed, the most pretentious way you possibly could. Oh, massively. Could. Yeah, I, mm. I could talk at length about canted framing. And the meaning of the canted framing. Well, uh, expressionism was also a big one too, all the, all the, all the Germans. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that was a, the second semester was, yeah, we got into the history of film and those early, those early German films. I forget the, the name of the film. It was this real weird film that our lecturer was so in, into and was, just, was so excited to show us. But it was basically, they, um, they used sort of forced perspective. So you know how like if you... Oh, yeah. So the room, you'd walk into the room and it would appear much smaller and all that kind of yeah, thing. Well, yeah, and so you know how like they'd build a place, like in a play you'd build a set and you'd, uh, or if you did a drawing, you'd have the dimensions so that um, the, you know, even though it's on a flat page, at one end to look further away to be smaller. Well, they'd made a set with that sort of stuff, but the actors were interacting through that set. So it really messed with your... Um, with your perception of where they were, and there was no, it was hard to tell depth and yeah, who was bigger and who was smaller. Yeah, it was, it was like cra- a John Candy and Martin Short together kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, a, but it was a, this is crazy German film from like the thirties. It was yeah, um, the, 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 and there was all that very avant-garde stuff coming out of German, Germany, and then all those filmmakers left for Hollywood. I can't imagine why. Yeah, I don't what know What happened why. in the late 30s? As if they would have their, their creative expression inhibited in yeah, Germany. In Germany. No way. 
<laughs> where, yeah, no, Germany, they're known for their, uh, let's, let's get into the arts. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Anything goes. Yeah. Well, actually, they do, they do, have, some, um, they do have some history of some great arts, particularly in the, the music and that sort of stuff. There's some great oh, classical yeah, musicians. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not exactly happy. No. You know, no one puts on Marla for, for the beat. captures a mood. It does capture a mood. In fact, when I was uh, I was travelling in Berlin a couple of years ago and went to a... Uh, and it's an amazing city. Uh, there's a, an island in the middle of Berlin called Museum Island and we had just incredible... Oh, what's there? It's a, it's, there's a, uh, a roller coaster. Okay. And yeah. the German wet and wild. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, but uh, when the Germans Vet and say... Wild. Vet and wild. When they say we sports, they mean something very different. So just be careful. <laughs> and... Um, I went, there was a, a uh, an exhibition of German tourism posters throughout the years, and if you've never if you've never seen, if people say the Germans don't have a sense of humour, but let me tell you, German tourism posters pretty fucking funny. Oh really? Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, go nuts. Okay. Uh, my I don't fa- know. I'll my my favourite one was mate. Poland. Only two hours by tank, which is nice. <laughs> Only two hours by tank. That is good. That is very good. Thank you, man. And you. Uh, yeah. The German, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I um, I'd love to get a German. I get a mate who I went to school with, who uh, is now a uh, he's a concert trumpeter, so he plays classical trumpet, and he lives in Germany, um, and you know has lived there. Oh, he, he must have been close to ten years now. He's lived over there, but he was the guy at school who, if you said to me, Andrew, one of your friends out of this group of friends will live in a foreign country and speak a foreign language, uh, he would have been the last guy bloke i thought because he just he was one of those guys who just loved like he grew up on the same street as a couple of the other mates he still hung out with guys that, like he just loved home yeah, yeah and yeah, now sure. yeah lives on the other side of the world um his english is getting worse oh wow he sends, okay. as i was talking to another mate about this he sends you a text every now and then it's it's basically in broken english and you what's That's going amazing. on scotty it's amazing when you look back i i went to school with a dude his name is david muller he lives uh, in the United States now. I grew up in South Africa, and he he lives over there now. We'll come back to that. Well, okay. And he, uh, you know, we're Facebook mates uh, and what have you. And he uh, recently did a Facebook uh, thing about being selected for the Nobel Prize committee, which chooses the people who win the Nobel Prize for physics. Wow. So, you know, like super incredibly smart. He was the guy who was giving lectures at university while we were still at, at primary school, I'm talking about. Oh, my about. God. You know, he was lecturing in paleontology. And when someone just goes, hey... Oh, he God. was the Ross. Yeah, I think so. He was, but but could actually deliver a funny line. <laughs> and, um, you know, he kind of said, look, this just arrived in the mail, uh, selection by the Nobel Committee. And what do you say to your mate? You could, there's just no way to, to one-up that. There's no, no way to combat it. And I just went, well, I've just watched season five of The Sopranos again. Your uh, move, bro. Yeah, well, guess what? I'm emceeing at the Anmore Comedy Club on <laughs> Tuesday right. night. And the Oatley and Manly Hotel. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I get three gigs, three nights in a row, nailing it. <laughs> um, yeah, that is. Yeah, that, that's hard to compete with, Can't isn't beat it? that. It's, it's 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 always is interesting to see where um where people end up. So you, so is this a mate like you said you were a mate from when you were kids? Were yeah, they, we were we were at primary school together in, in South Africa. Yeah, that must be. See now, I've got this um thing in I've noticed in my life because I spent a bit of time um, growing up in a small country town, and then when I was about sixteen, 
um, after about 10 years living there, we moved to Newcastle. And the big difference I noticed there is the dynamic of a small country town is it sort of, at a certain age, kicks a lot of the, the young people out because to do, to get, you know, go and get jobs and all that sort of stuff, you end up having to, having to you know, go out into the world and find places. Whereas Newcastle's big enough that, you know, there's, there's enough jobs there, there's enough different fields, like, you can work in there, but a lot of people don't leave. So, a lot of my Newcastle mates still in Newcastle, a lot of my um, Corowa mates all over the world, like, just living every part of the world, which strikes me as maybe a, a dynamic of, um, in some ways, South Africa at the time. Oh, you very were much so. going through school. Yeah, yeah, my family emigrated in 1988. Okay. And uh, at the time, there were a couple of things happening. Uh, on a broader level, uh, there was a real spike in crime and uh, people... And when you talk about crime in South Africa, it's very disproportionate. So it's not like people would steal your phone and uh, and knock you over in the street. They would steal your phone and kill you, or stab yeah. you or shoot you. Um, so it was very disproportionate, very random. That was happening. At the same time, there was huge political unrest. Um, things like the newspapers were censored. Yeah, there were literally black marks on the newspapers on the things that the government didn't want you to see. So there was building to a, a real, you know, revolution. And where and you look at the horrors of the apartheid system, and and then all the historical precedents. My family, my dad, just kind of went, I don't think this is going to end well. Yeah. I'm going to get my family out before someone get, gets hurt. Uh, and aside from that, there was my family's ideological opposition to apartheid. And then the nail in the coffin. Opposition? Yeah, yeah I know. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's funny, that. Yeah, um, who would have thought? And uh, on top of that, uh, military uh, conscription was still a thing. Oh, wow. So my, my older brother did two years serving in the army for a system that we found abhorrent. And uh, then my turn came around and my mum and dad went, well... I don't think this kid could cut it in the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> he looks awful in brown. Look, <laughs> yeah. so brown's not his colour. Yeah, he's just let, let's get, let, let's go. He's not a camper. No, oh, no, you know, there's no, he's not there's not a camper, and unless there's a day spa in the war, he won't be interested. Yeah. Well, it's um, yeah. Look, maybe glamping safari one day. Oh, day. one day. Yeah, but to, you know, only only if country road is involved. Yeah. Yeah, I could see you wearing that. Uh, you know the 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 linen sh- the light linen shirt on. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Whoa, and uh, we're still recording. We just uh, managed to knock the recorder off here. This. So uh, that, that's uh, I, I'm a, I'm a stay at home dad with two dogs. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, mate, they uh, they're much better behaved than uh, than my two would be. My two uh, boys. They're would very be inner city one. dogs, Barry and Maureen. Barry Crocker Spaniel is the one's full name. <laughs> and uh, as long as they they, they, they have a, a, a chai latte and some kombucha later in the day, oh they'll be God. fine. Yeah. You are this is this is the um this is a real uh, interesting day for me because I spent the morning recording a podcast with Mick Meredith. Uh, oh people about get us confused all the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and it's uh, it's just face face cream advice I've been getting all day, <laughs> any um, time. But me- meanwhile, Mr. Meredith himself has has come up with his own grooming range. Did he tell you that? Yes, I've uh, yeah, the man candy beard bar. Yeah, so uh, I think he, Andy and he's on a uh, on a. I don't know if you guys spoke about his new health kick. Uh, we did actually. Okay, so you know, between the uh, between the the beard balm and the trimming down for summer, I think there might be a bit more of the metrosexual in Mr. Meredith than he might let on. 
No, I and you know what? I don't think he. Um, I don't think he's too shy about letting it on. I just think it's it's not what you'd expect from the. He's he's a many layered uh, many layered onion. <laughs> I was going to go multifaceted diamond, but many layered onion. <laughs> yes, is, is sorry. Probably fits more in with his kebab theme that he <laughs> invariably returns to. Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, so back to South Africa. So yep. you you were um. So what was that like growing up in South Africa? So I Joburg? It was weird. Yes, I grew up in Johannesburg. Uh, I went to government schools, my whole school in Korea. And uh, as you say about growing up somewhere, but you knew there was a different reality somewhere else. Um, you know, this Johannesburg is a, is a very, uh, it's a bipolar city because you've got Johannesburg and then you've got Soweto, where, is where, where, where the black South Africans had to live by law. And it's a city of comparable size, but people just came in to work for white people during the day or on the mines and then went home. So you knew this whole other world was out there, but access to it was very, very hard to get, um, and dangerously so. You could, um, you could not, not physically dangerously, but the government was watching for people this, who were doing so this. So this late 80s, so you moved in 88, did you yeah, say? Yeah, so, so this was a, a, a early 80s, late 70s, really. Okay. But, you know, things that were so hard to imagine for, for, for Australians. Like we, I only saw TV for the first time in 1976, which is when TV came to South Africa. Oh, wow. So bearing in mind, Australia got it in 1956. Yeah. And uh, it was regimentally controlled by the government. Um. It was, uh, I didn't see a picture of Nelson Mandela until I came to live in Australia because actually just owning his picture was a crime. It was a banned image. So the, uh, the, the extent to which government uh, censorship figured in your daily life was unimaginable to that, people who, who might have grown up here. Yeah, that's fascinating too, especially now living in an age where the internet means that there's so much information out there that you can access um, you know, basically at your fingertips. And the thought of, like, you know, the thought of even mild censorship on the internet drives people nuts. Um, but think back, it wasn't that long ago pre-internet when even with unfettered access to information, like even if your media is not um, censored in any, any way, like way, shape or form, there really still wasn't the sort of access, like even unfettered access, you didn't get to see the whole picture of things. You didn't get a great view of uh, the world outside your own necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in many ways, it's kind of... Because I'm coming from a journalistic background, I, I love the idea of citizen journalism, that people can ha- now have a voice. But I, I, I also worry that now nowadays you don't need uh, a, a reasoned validated in terms of I've done my research and this is why I believe this. As long as... Or it's just my opinion... And yeah. it's because it's my opinion, it's valid. And that really, I kind of kind of go, oh, there's just, you know, we're on the precipice, this cusp of an information revolution where people could theoretically get information they never had access to. Um, let's say the world of education could just benefit in such a huge way. But uh, you look at the cyber world and you kind of go, and how much are we devoting to conspiracy theories? Yeah. Well, I think... I th- think the we've we've reached a, an interesting time in that one of, I think one of the major failings of sort of our education it's probably a symptom of education across most sort of western democracies 
um, seems to be that we're not teaching enough reasoning, logical, um, how to how to take something apart logically and re- like reasoning out an argument. Yeah, yeah. because we that was pr- prior to prior to very recently, your information sources were very vetted, so a lot of that had been done for you. So you know you got taught this is the history in in uh, you know in in school you got taught history based on these are the textbooks which have been vetted through universities and whatever oh, and no however you know however many errors they contained they contained the best sort of uh, vetted knowledge of the day uh, well just some vetting yes you know so in the era of the tweet in the 140 characters that the I, I my concern is that the era of the footnote is over where yeah. you can look at something and go, so that is where you got that statistic from. And then the person never reading the opinion can go, okay, well, that was from the United Nations or it was from just a source that is has some cachet to it and some integrity to it as opposed to I asked four people in a focus group and gave them free Tim Tams and that's why Islam is bad. And that's the thing. This is the, the – now we've got – Many, 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 many more sources of information. We get direct information. You can get all sorts of stuff on the internet. But if you don't have the skill to, to tell the difference between okay, what weight do I put on this information that is vetted and is being is comes from the UN or a or a study or that has been done with some sort of scientific method, as opposed to a conspiracy theory or a four-person focus group um, that that was done with confirmation bias already in mind. Then, if you can't tell the difference between those two, then it doesn't matter how many sources of information you've got. You're just as lost as if you had none. Totally, and I think that should be if you know if if I was in president of the world, uh, oh, here I'd, we go. I'd put in a number of rules. Number one, uh, that you'd have to have a license to wear white pants in public. There'd be a board that you appeared before, <laughs> I and you'd get your license. And secondly, up there was reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, information. Uh, Evaluation should be a uh, yeah. totally should be a subject in school, so people can go yes, no, this is good, this isn't. Yeah, and I think I think that's I think that's super important because I think too we came of age with the, the with the the internet too. Um, a lot of the a lot of the the official sources where their things were wrong or there were mistakes made or information was left out. Um, that became exposed in the early, and you see the the WikiLeaks stuff that all comes out, and so then this idea of you can't trust you can't trust the official story gets in there. Well, if you can't trust that, then all of a sudden um, you sort of we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater in some. You know, absolutely. Having worked for a number of news providers across, you know, PBL and Fairfax and 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 News Limited, all of which uh, have had very warranted cr- claims levelled against them. I still think in, in some ways it's a lesser of two evils because if an, I write an article, I have to basically say this is where I found my facts. Yeah. And, I, and there will be people who are checking that, the sub-editors, which are, an, and again, an, a dying breed. Um, and I ca- if I say so, this is a percentage in this study, my editor will go back and go, okay, I'm going to trace that back to exactly where you found it and is that study worthy of putting in publication? And not just that too, but if you, if you do um, libel someone or, um, you know, in, in one of your articles, um, there is recourse for, for those people in a publication because the, the, our, the, our legal system had 
um, has built into it through years and years of experience of, um, you know, through the necessary uh, necessity that it was developed uh, as this sort of legislation should be, I suppose. But that was built into dealing with the idea of, okay, what do we get if we have someone in the press who's, who's um, basically um, libeling someone or, or publishing just outlandish lies about mm. someone? We've got laws in place to deal with that. Yeah, and better, and better yet, in the fact-checking process, there'd be someone going, hey, we need to run this past our legal department before That's it. it even hits the press. So it's in, it's in your publication's interest then to make sure you're factually correct. So the, the carrot and the stick are there. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and nowadays, you know, aside from just the, the legalities of it, it's just uh, the online world has just become such a mean and ungenerous it and, is and mean, destructive isn't it? place. You know, I, uh, I think that, uh, you know, we, we, we're able to hit send so easily without con- considering, <laughs> considering the impact that uh, that will have on people, and uh, you know, I don't know when you when you're planning on uh, on broadcasting this, but this this Amber Sherlock story about the the woman who who told her colleague to put on a jacket because three people on oh Channel Nine were wearing white has just been blown up into such a nasty affair, and uh, because someone leaked some footage and. Uh, you know, just the things that, that people feel they can say about other human beings. And, you know, my, my catchphrase for, for 2017 is meanwhile in Syria, because I just yes. think it's a, it, it makes you go, hey, listen, you know, we, we live in a... We're very blessed to have the lives we live for mo- the majority of us in Australia. Mate, that Amber Sherlock story, I, I saw that video and, um, and it, look, to be honest, uh, to me, I, it would never have occurred to me... Um, being because I'm not in the I'm not on TV. I'm not doing that sort of aesthetic stuff. That it, if I saw that and they're all wearing white, I probably wouldn't have even noticed. Yeah, well, exactly. And you know, I mean, Channel Nine has been putting all white panels on for years, and this is the first <laughs> time the first time it's bothered anyone. But that's a, but this it's the weird thing is like with that that is a simple. Um, you're taking a simple time charge dispute between two co-workers who probably get along reasonably well and you're having a tough day how many times have you had uh, a minor argument with a co-worker or you know on an exchange that if taken out of context like that and shown to the world would look like you're both kind of bitchy towards each other absolutely and uh, you know it's uh, in this 24 7 news cycle that we live in now there is such an appetite for anything mildly controversial that will divide opinion, whereas the real things that we need to be worrying about and the, the things that we should be concerned about, as we say, you know, the the situation in Aleppo, the the president elect of the United States being a halfwit. Well, yeah, <laughs> but go back to the go back to the idea of the the lack of credibility of the the implications of the lack of credibility of the media. Is it like he's now pointing to people in press conferences and going, you know, CNN, I'm not taking a question. Yeah, you fake, fake news. news. It, it's just extraordinary. And the way that the... Uh, and the, the, the media have, a, have, a, have had a role to play in this. Like, oh, yeah. You know, I, I firmly believe that uh, there was such a complacency around Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton and that the, the left-wing liberal media basically wrote off the fact that a lot of people... Um, both in America and here, feel that they're not being acknowledged and that their concerns are not being heard. 
I think too that um, I think we're living somewhat in echo chambers more than we probably and, and it's hard to know it's hard to put that in historical context like it's easy for me to say we're living in echo chambers more than we ever have but realistically like are we going to compare that to you know tribes people who literally lived in an echo chamber because if you disagreed with the kid the chief of the tribe you know what i mean but um but what i, I think is we we do tend to because we thought what would happen with this um with the internet is this divergence you get all these information sources so you can go get the best information turns out what you can also do is a much more human instinct is to go and find the information that supports the view you've already hold absolutely and confirm your worldview so then so now, whereas, you know, say in, when back in the three channel days, you had your three choices of channels for new, where you got your news. And they all told, you know, they'd take di- slightly different um, perspectives, but they were basically, you had your three sources for news. Now, so all the whole political spectrum were plugging into one of three sources for news. Now, if you're a person who sits on the far right, you can go to a far right news site. If you're a person who sits... A little bit in from the far right, so you you know you're a more traditional conservative, very right, um, right wing conservative who's not the ultra right sort of crazy alt right type thing. Um, you find you're just conservative news station, and then likewise on the on the left, if you're a yeah. you know you go to the you go as far left as you want, and you can come right into the centre to get your news. So everyone, yeah. Well, and what I was going to say there was if you had a massive head trauma, you can go to Alan Jones. <laughs> but the thing is, the thing is, it's exactly that kind of snooty lefty elitism exactly. that have people have have has people say, you know what? I'm tired of having being looked down the nose of people who think they're cleverer than me. Yes, and these are my fears. And now someone is actually addressing them and saying that I have a validity in feeling this. Mm. And it'll be interesting to watch what happens over the next four years. Um, fingers crossed, we all make it. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? I think it's my my. Uh, I saw a great line on on Saturday Night Live uh, where D- Alex uh, Alec Baldwin has done an amazing job in doing in impersonating Donald Trump, and his line was along as over the next four years. But let's face it, probably two until Mike Pence is elected. Yeah, exactly. Vice president. Which I don't know if that like ah uh, did that. That to me is not that much better of an outcome from someone of my political sort of persuasion being I, I consider myself centre left sort of person. I did, Mike Pence isn't he's no cup of tea either. He's not, but at least he is somewhat involved in the, the political machine. Ah, he, this is the thing: is that you? I don't mind having people outside the political machine or outside not the political machine outside the system. But they have to be invested in the system. It's like this idea of the um, the you've seen it very much with the Tea Party over there in the US, the libertarian sort of that real anti-government part of it, where they basically they get elected into Congress, they don't let anything happen, they basically stop government from working, and then say, "See, told you government didn't work." It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, absolutely, yeah, so absolutely. Look, I. Uh I uh, I can't say I'm a fan of the guy. I don't, and I think that uh, you know any anyone who ha- who who um who is opposed to gay marriage um, or um, an anti-vaxxer or that kind of thing, it just <laughs> I I I really have trouble wrapping my head around it. I think that there are things that we need to be focusing on 
I, you know, you you look at what's happening in Russia, you look at what's happening in North Korea, you look at what's happening in 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 Africa, where there is where there are huge problems with uh, just feeding human beings. It's, it's yeah. like, come on, can we can we maybe shift the focus here? Yeah, it's I've, one thing I am taking though from because I'm a big believer in silver linings. Um, one thing I think I'm trying to learn, I think you just try and learn something from everyone you come across. One thing I've learned from Trump is I, I think I'm going to start doing what he does in that, say, you know, so uh, just ask me a question about, you know, Andrew, have you read whatever book? Okay, have you read In Cold Blood by <laughs> Truman Capote? No one knows cold, In Cold Blood better than I do. Truman Capote, I know Truman, I read Truman Capote better than anyone. <laughs> just that kind of braggadocia absolutely yeah absolutely. i love that 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 i find funny because it can't there's no way that you can competitively read truman compote truman capote like that's i love his ability to brag about things that there's no actual measurable way to validate whether like you know no one knows the bible like i do when he oh, said that yeah. no one knows <laughs> absolutely i have the best words yeah i have the best words <laughs> So, ah, man, I know words. I've got the best words. Absolutely the best words. A man who's anti, anti-immigrant, but he's married three of them. Yes. And, well, anti-not-hot immigrant. Anti-not-hot immigrant, though. And, and the, it, it is, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, he will be a gift to comedians. He already has been a gift to comedians. Yeah, my worry, though, is it's a bit like the Bush thing. You know where it just becomes, it becomes its own punchline? And comedy gets boring there. I don't. I don't know if you like. I remember there was a George Bush phase where comedy became. There was not all of comedy. Obviously, it's it's not that easy just to categorize the whole thing. But there was an element that became. Um, it it's almost too easy. So it becomes a yeah, lazy. Oh, there'll be a best line. before date. Absolutely. Oh yeah, there'll be a bit. I I don't, I don't think we're there yet. But no. I think that is it. As you say, it, it is on the on the horizon. I've got to say that when the uh, when the story came out about the uh, the golden shower thing, oh, yeah. um, which you know again you know BuzzFeed, which is not a news site, went out without ver- verifying any of this, and uh, of course once it was out, the cat was out of the bag, and people did start reporting on it. But one of my favourite headlines was uh, "Tinkle Tinkle Little Czar." <laughs> came out in, in the UK, and I thought someone someone got the day off when the, they came up with that. The the UK seems to still have those um those headline editors that um that that's just that's what they keep that guy around for. Oh, absolutely, and it it's, comes down to population. That you know there are people there are twenty million people buying the newspaper every day, which means they can afford a snuff. Yeah. To keep doing that, I the 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 British headline tradition uh, is absolutely something I adore. My favourite one of all time uh, was from Scotland, and there was a uh, a uh, a football match between a team called uh, Caledonian, and they beat Celtic, who was one of the big teams. And Caledonian's a very small team, and the the headline was "Super Cali Go Ballistic Celtic Are Atrocious." That's fantastic. <laughs> Isn't that just magnificent? That is just, and because that is, there's there's such an art to that. It's not like, see, now I feel like that person, like the the person that goes into that job, is now really good on Twitter. Well, you know, kind of in a way, the 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 art of the, the of clever writing, I think, and I, I don't want to sound like an old fogey and saying it's dying, but it's it's certainly 
uh, becoming less valued in the era of, of search engine optimization because puns and, and beautiful turns of phrase don't do well on Google. Yeah, really. I, see, I kind of feel like... See, that would get me with... As in, you know, we talk about clickbait. If I saw that at the top of the... Um, at the top, as a headline on the news page, Super Cali Globalistic, yeah. uh, Celtic are atrocious. I would, I would look at that and go, you know what? Don't know much about uh, football, particularly, you know, the, this sort of the the um, divisional football. So, but I would click on that. Yeah, to read but you'd have to story. be on their newspaper website to start with, and not yeah. Google, which is yeah. yeah so uh, it's uh, it's something that yeah. It's I don't know how we're going to. I think there'll always be an appetite for 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 a well turned phrase. It's just getting there has become a little harder because we don't want to work. We want we want the algorithm to do it for us. Yeah, I I, I kind of feel like we're just in a um, we're just in a transition phase at the moment with all this stuff. I don't think we understand the full impacts of all the technology at the moment. And I think t- ten years, and I think that's where um, you know for guys like in my age and probably ten years younger. Um, are just in that wrong phase of history. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're not there to capitalise on anything. Like, we'll understand the internet so much better in 10 years' time. But yeah, and it's, it's funny. I've, and, and people who... So I'm, I'm 48 and people older than my mum's generation, it's interesting seeing them come to grips with it. Uh, she, she is, she'll call to see if I've received her email, which I find utterly charming. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's fantastic. Uh, she, uh, she, you know, she's a, a lady in her mid-70s, so she likes very sentimental things. Uh, can, I, the, can I suggest you just, and I know this isn't uh, a kind prank to play on an elderly relative, but can you just return one email not known at this address, return to sender? Oh, that's that's a great idea. I would absolutely do that. I will do that. Um, she uh, she likes very sentimental film clips. She's discovered YouTube, and I'm sure that you know that clip about um, the two blokes who uh, adopted a lion cub in London. Oh yeah. And yeah. then they went and they found this lion cub who they released back into the wild because it was clearly a weird thing to do. And the lion, who was an adult, now recognised him. And it's a really beautiful clip. She sends it to me the other day with the uh, with the subject line, "Make sure you have a box of tissues handy for this one." <laughs> and um, <laughs> there are certain subject lines you just don't want to get from your mum. Mm. Look, mum, just say, mate, look, mum, uh, look, hard to beat off to, but I got there. <laughs> but but the ending was very warm. <laughs> yes, charming. That's oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> the innocence of that. Yeah, it's just China. How do you? You can't even go there and go. No, no. She uh, she's a, a, a hilarious lady. She I was driving along with her a couple of years ago, and uh, being a white South African Jew, I'm obviously a huge hip hop fan. Yeah, and uh, we were listening to um, Ludacris's "I've Got Hose" in different area codes. Is one of the songs on the playlist, and she said, "Who who is this, darling?" And I went, "It's a guy called Ludacris," and she went, "Wow." He must be doing quite well for himself. I mean, well, what do you mean, Mum? She goes, well, he's got homes in different area codes. <laughs> yes, that's yep, it. Yep, he does. Homes, he homes. does have homes in different area codes. And, uh, yeah, look, it's mostly about real estate investment rap. Um, oh, it so is. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. She's a real fixer-upper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear, uh, you know, I've got 99 problems, but a... Uh, a, a <laughs> but overheads ain't one. Yeah. But sconces ain't one. <laughs> know how to flip a home. <laughs> I could drives, motherfucker. Oh, mate, I um, 
So you you guys moved out in '88. So your mum mum and dad here in Australia? Yeah, they are. They so are. Which part of St Ives do they live in, mate? Oh, close, close, Rose Bay. Rose Bay. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other yeah, enclave. The other, the other one. Yeah. The I just figured one. South African seems to be the the more St Ives area. It is, it is very much so. But the the trend now is, and uh, I know how many stereotypes this will this will enforce, uh, is that the St Ives people who bought their their big homes in 1988 are now downsizing to Bondi because they're actually selling their homes to Chinese investors. Oh, really? And making three times what they paid for them. Oh, God. You know, you can take the Jews out of the market, but you can't, can't take the market out of the Jews, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> oh, man. that's It is... Like, it's, it's interesting because people... I think sometimes too, like now in this day, the, the the day and age of political sensitivities, there would be people when, when I say, oh, you South African Jewish, like, oh, which part of St. Ives? There'd people that go, oh, you can't stereotype like that. You know, it's But there's a reason some of those stereotypes are around, is there was a large Absol- South African community absolutely. in St. Ives. You know, that, that comedy rule of I can but you can't, I think is something that... What'd you call me? Uh, <laughs> uh, is something that uh, is is quite valid. And, and you know, it's... it's uh, comedy is made by outsiders. And yes. it always has been and it always will be. And... The way that uh, and and race is a part of it. It's just something that some groups of people are different from other groups of people, and uh, I worry that we're becoming too sensitive about certain aspects of it. Uh, I I'm not anti PC. I'm not one of those oh PCs ruin things, but I also think that the whole triggering theme going if you're reacting and offended simply by a concept rather than c- content or or, or specific context, mm. then we need to maybe just go, hey, wait a minute. I, I, I think that it's quite concerning that great comedians like a Jerry Seinfeld or a Chris Rock are refusing to play coll- colleges anymore in the United States. Uh, especially the idea that Jerry Seinfeld's triggering anyone. Like Chris Rock is always, um, he's always not. Uh, but he 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 is more political in what he talks about. He he is he does talk about more uncomfortable issues, stuff that isn't as um isn't as socially chatted about. Um, whereas Jerry Seinfeld's he's he's making observations on just exactly, about but every but little the stuff that that rocks talks about is is valid and oh, and 100%. it should be debated. And if you get a reaction to it, great. Let's talk about that reaction to it. As opposed to just going hashtag, as opposed to just going hashtag offended, he's a racist asshole. End of story. That's it. And th- this is the thing: is I, on my issue with political correctness is I don't, I don't, I'm like, I'm not super anti PC, but on my thing is I don't really want people to be politically correct. I want them to be correct. So I don't want you to not say something, not say, um, you know, not call a gay guy a faggot, not because you think you're not allowed, but because you know that it's you shouldn't because that will offend him. Yeah, the, and that, that we've person. moved on. Yeah, and, and that th- we've moved on. It's context and intent. Exactly. Is something, are two act things that, that often fall by the wayside when it comes to knee-jerk reactions. And uh, I, I think that it, that it is quite dangerous once people start going down a road where you go, well, you can't talk, that's something you can't talk about. It was like, no, fuck you. Everything can be talked about. It's all exactly. about how it's talked about. And... If 
if I want to talk about something and I say it and it is offensive and it offends you, that's fine. And you're more than within your rights to be offended and to tell me you're offended and we can talk about it. That's a much healthier, in my view, exchange of ideas than um, me thinking something, feeling like I'm not allowed to say it, can't say it. So I never really changed my mind. Yeah. This is my thing is that you know, with, um, with a lot of... Uh, with a lot, of, you look at a lot of the this um, uh, social justice activists on online. I always look and think, well, how many minds did you actually change? Absolutely. Like, if you're an activist, your your idea, my personal thought of what an activist was always has been is someone who is advocating a a way of thinking or a cause or whatever. So intrinsic in that is the the idea that you're trying to change someone's mind to come round to oh, if you're just slinging shit get across the cyber fence and and justifying your own feelings um i just don't think it's constructive there was a great quote there's a a, a british comic called victoria wood who died last year very young and she was asked about this and her quote always resonated with me she went if it's funny it's not offensive and if it's offensive it's not funny and <laughs> It was such a beautifully succinct way of going, you know what, the audience will tell you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there are jokes now that, you, ca- you, that, you know, if five years ago that would get a great response, but now the audience goes, oh, I'm, we're not quite there anymore. Mm. And that's the challenge of stand-up, of, of moving along with that. Yes, Rodney Roode will sell out a, a, a room in the Burbs just saying the stuff he used to say, but in terms of... Where comedy rooms are at these days, and and you've got to remember the main comedy audience is eighteen to thirty. Rarely, who's going out on a on a Thursday or a Friday night to see a comedy room in the inner city where a lot of the comedy rooms thrive? Yeah, see, I I, I kind of think um, midweek comedy rooms that'd be the demographic. I, I I tend to think like if you're doing say the store on a Saturday night, the Sydney Comedy Store, then you do have a much you, there's yes, a, there's a, I'd agree with that. that Weekend, the weekend mainstream audiences absolutely have, mm. a, have a broader diversity. And working a lot on cruise boats, oh, I, yeah, I find that there's that. a greater diversity. And, uh, and that's the funny thing. That's, uh, the, the cruise boat world is becoming such a big part of Australian comedy and people who want to make a living doing comedy in Australia. And, and cruise boat entertainment is really, I think, looked down the nose by a lot of people who've never done it or never seen it. Mm. And it's you. You see a lot of the comics and people go, "Oh, you know, you work in cruise boats." And it's like, "Yeah, it's you know, you have to learn how to play a room, and it's maybe four hundred people age eighteen to sixty and find all their funny." Yeah, and uh, you know, the edgy inner city comics often have a bit of problems with that. I think. I think the. I think it depends, like what you're approaching comedy what your approach to comedy is in terms of what you aim to achieve if you get up you're a stand-up comedian and your um your number one sort of goal why you do stand-up is to get your ideas out there and to get your um uh get your sort of point of view and your view of the world out there and you know get i sprinkle ideas into people's minds then that's definitely not going to be um for you whereas if you approach comedy and it's going you know what my first job is to entertain people i'm an entertainer and i will do what i can within that to to shape it the way i want to do it i think that's a there's different approaches i'm finding to the it comes down i think sometimes to the reason people get into comedy yeah absolutely look i uh again i'll, I'll go back to, to adam hills who gave me a great 
some great advice, lots of great advice when I was starting. But he, his point as to why he did it and something that, uh, that really, again, struck a chord with me was I want to make people feel better leaving a venue than they did when they walked in. Yeah. And I can't find a better, a better philosophy than that. Uh, you know, other people have different views. I'm not saying that mine is any better, but this is, that's the one that sits most comfortably with me. Yeah. I'm starting to come around to the idea too that not everything needs to be for everyone. Like, like you know, you see the you see certain you know some people talk about oh you know this this comic does well in this type of room or whatever. Well, that's that's fine. That's their audience. Or you know you see comics like um, often you know you'll see a comic on the rise and you'll see other comics that and I think sometimes it's out of a bit of jealousy. Go, oh, I don't get it. I don't see why it's funny. Or um, yeah, no, it, really it, it it can be a, an incredibly. But sometimes you just have to go, look, this isn't for me. Yeah, I'm not yeah, the audience abs- of this and absolutely. they're doing a job And in it's there. the same with music. I, I don't understand why, you know, we, we're so, we, we can do that with mu- music and movies. Yes. But with comedy, there seems to be this stumbling block that, and maybe it's because it's so personal. It is. And it, I think it is too, because it is so personal too. Every, there's no, you won't, you'll never meet a person on earth that says, I have no sense of humour, I've never laughed at anything. Everyone thinks they know what funny is because they've laughed. It's instinctual. You'd, it's something you'd never question. If something's funny, you laugh. You find it funny. So it's not something you've had to intellectually think about as an audience member if you've never tried to, to make comedy. Why something's funny or anything like that. You just it's you know it when you see it. It's like art. You know it when you see it. Absolutely. And there is room for everyone, I, yeah, th- exactly. I think, uh, in, the, in, the, in the comedy sphere that... Uh, there is, I, I love seeing avant-garde, edgy people who, whose work is suffused with, uh, with social meaning and, and, and makes you walk away going, I never thought about that subject that way. I think Corey White is someone that I, I really admire and I love the way he does that. Uh, I could never be that. I, I, just, I, just, I just want 300 strangers to love me. That's, I, I, now, I'm a bit more needy than... <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit like you, I'm needy. But it's the, I think, too, the thing is, is like, like I love watching guys. Corey Watt's a perfect example. He's one of my favourite guys to watch because it's something. His approach is and the way he, the, like like you said, his angles. You guys, I'd never think to think that's something from that angle. It's brilliant. Yeah, and and utterly fearless too. Yeah, and but because it's something that I don't like. It's something that's so foreign to me that I couldn't do. I know that. Like I look at it, I I get to enjoy it as an audience member. Whereas you see someone who's a bit more in your lane of comedy, I find I'm like, okay, yeah, you're just trying to pick up the learn, like trying to learn stuff. You know uh, yeah, what I mean? absolutely. I think that uh, one of the things that a lot of people who aren't comics don't realize, you you almost give up your right to become a punter. Yes. At, when you when you do comedy, you, you you're uh, you're taking you're taking it apart when you're in the audience. I mean, there's a great a great my fa- I've got a couple of favorite jokes about comedians, and one of my favorites is the. Uh, is the how long, uh, why does it take 10 comedians to change a light bulb? Well, one to change it and nine to go, how long is he going to be up there? <laughs> oh, that is, yeah, that's good. I, I mean, I, that's one of my favourite things about comedy and, like, I'd suggest, like, I, I still like going and watching it, but I, I, I find... Can you be a punter, though? Or can, is it... Is it maybe diminished by 20%? I find it's diminished, but I find it easier to watch guys who are so different to what I do that I just get to sit and be the audience member. Right. Like, it's just like, I just let go of all the, oh, 
oh, wow, how does how did he do that? Like, well, I wish I, I yeah, I've, 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 I've traded my license somewhere along the way. I wish I, I still could. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, do, I still do enjoy. I, I just enjoy comedy. I enjoy too watching people um, interact with an audience too, which is I think. And this is what I was t- thinking about, like with the the one of the unintended consequences I think of the internet, with just the proliferation of the amount of m- content that's out there. Is um, and I think we've seen it in music with with what happened with um, when you know recorded music became essentially free um, over the internet. Then to make money, bands started having to play live again. That 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 became the main source of money again. And now I'm this is from an outsider's perspective. That's from what I can gather. That's now a lot of main a lot of big bands. That's their main source of income is they generate a lot from the touring. And I feel like the – I think we're in the start of a swing back to people appreciating live stuff, stuff that happened right there in the room. It's not your – someone recorded this and we shared it on Facebook, but, but in a room full of people and we're having a an entertainment experience together. I feel yeah. like that's coming back. Look, I, I, I totally agree with that. As someone who does a lot of improvising on stage, I – firmly believe that an audience knows when something's been created in the moment. Mm. I think there's still some resistance from younger comics who see talking to an audience as being as a bit of a hack thing to do. And, uh, you know, the where you're from and what do you do kind of stuff. Mate, um, yeah, it's, that's what this podcast is. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, mean, I don't agree with it. I think it's, it, it's, 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 there's a braveness involved because you're not just doing the same thing that you've done for 10 years and... And uh, sometimes it can go wrong, but I do believe that uh, my theory is I don't care who gets the laugh as long as the laugh is got. And yeah. I've had some of the most rewarding moments of my career have been other people who are sitting in front of me being hilarious and then the room just being swept up in that. See, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I don't know about you, but I like the idea of – and this is one of the things I love about stand-up and – uh, I like the idea of something that's happening there and then and only there and then and this just happened and we were all here and we saw it and we can tell everyone we know about it but it's never going to be as good as when we were right here. And I, I see that with like, you know, you watch comedy, like you watch all the comedy specials on Netflix and all that sort of stuff and I just know that as much as I'll sit there and watch a, a comedy special and laugh and go, oh, that's good. There's no way I laugh as much watching it on TV in my lounge room on my own or even with a couple of people than I would if if I was in that theatre with the energy in the room that night and that feeling. Yeah. Like it, comedy is something that like as, as good as some of those specials are and don't get me wrong, I would never trade uh, the experience of watching Eddie Murphy or listening actually on tape the first time I heard Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. listening on tape to, to the roar and delirious. I'd never trade that for the world. I'm glad those recordings are out there. But I have to think that's a, a one one-hundredth of what it would have been if you were in that room. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There is that, that – um, and as, as cliched as it sounds, there is that beautiful exchange of energy. Yeah. That where and, and one of the things I love to do, especially when I'm emceeing, is create a safe environment where people feel they can talk or interact or say something. I mean – you, you obviously have to make sure that they're not impinging on other people's enjoyment of the night. But some of the, the most wonderful moments I've ever had have been on stage. Uh, the one that comes to mind, a guy was doing a, a gig at the Oatley Hotel in Sydney and uh, a bloke, um, <laughs> I was about to introduce the headliner, a guy just... W- 
put up his hand to ask a question. I went, sir, yes. And he, go, he goes, mate, your first joke and your last joke, they're too fucking far apart. <laughs> what? And uh, it was uh, the most beautifully thought out heckle. And the room erupted and I just had to tip my hat to him and just go, you've made the night funnier and I love that. And yeah. So, you know, in, in and of the moment. And that's something that happened in a room full of people at that moment that could only, like, that, that, that you can't recreate that. It's like when you do do, do, do a bit of crab work. I, I always, that feeling when you're doing some crab work and something comes off and it just, it all works and it's beautiful and you get the big laugh. And then it's that feeling for me where I'm like, oh man, that was that was it, that was perfect. Is that, that yeah? It. That is as close to an out of body comedy experience as you ever get. Yeah, and but then the idea of the next night going, I can't do that again. Like I can't. Anytime you try and remanufacture the steps that got you to be able to drop whatever line that was, it just came yeah. to you through providence or whatever it is. When it, in that moment, you can't recreate that because you're interacting with a different person yeah absolutely it's, yeah it, it's lightning in a box yeah. and uh, the best the best thing that e one of the best things i should say that ever happened to me as a comedian was years ago at the comedy store it was being managed by someone called lisa lisa rathbone at the time and she booked me for it for a, a spot and she went you know what mate no going go on station but no i'm going to get you back and do no material just improv no you're going to come back here don't feel that you have to impress me or worry that you're not going to get booked just go and chat to the audience and it was the best gift anyone has ever given me in my comedy career yeah just the the, the freedom, the freedom to, to just go go play yeah, it might uh, not come off how do you find that now you because you you started writing um funny articles when you're at university and then obviously 10 years later you um you decided to actually uh to to get into the stand-up the live how do you find that difference because to me um I find, like, I like the idea of writing and I love the reward of writing. When I write something, right, you know, I've written a few things for online or whatever, and the, the reward of it at the end is it's very rewarding you put it out there. But it's just, I, I find it much more laborious than the stand-up where, one, you're, you're, um, your feedback's so immediate. Yep. And, that, and that's the pleasure and the peril. You know if a phrase works. Mm. And uh, to be... A joke that works on, on a stage, it has to be far more compact. Yeah. Whereas with writing, you have a bit more leeway in terms of metaphor and, and what have you. Uh, but with uh, by the same token, on stage, I can use my face and I can use my expressions and volume that goes up and down and what have you. So, you know, either of the, they both have their, their pleasures and their pitfalls. It's just a, a bit of a different craft. How do you go with um? How do you go with the discipline of writing? Because I find it, it it's one I, the hardest thing for me is getting started. You know, being a, having been a freelance journo for a long time, the discipline mm. is is inbuilt in many ways. People always say that I always say the best laxative for writer's block is a mortgage. You just <laughs> have to it'll unclog you real yeah. real fast, you know, because that's how you make your living. So you have to you have to email those words every day. You got to be hustling. Wow. So do you you obviously you write every day? You ever I have do write on? every I do write every day. Sometimes it's comedy, sometimes it's journalism. But uh, I, I don't write on weekends. I just I try to keep an offer a, a Monday to Friday kind of thing, but I always have a notebook and a, and it might be a joke, it might be a basis for an article, but 
there's usually something being written down. So do you, with your freelance stuff, like you do a lot of freelance work, so do you do you get tasked like, you know, we need an article on this or do you 50, pitch 50, ideas? 50-50 between pitching and being tasked. Oh, wow. And uh, then the, uh, the idea will be, so just today, for example, uh, I wrote a story about 10 wankers you'll meet on the road this year. And uh, in many ways, it's the same as writing. So how has the internet affected your writing, mate? With the um, listicles. Yeah, although, you know what? Story plans have now become fully... Story plans where you just used to write down your ten points that you were going to cover have now become the article. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd. But uh, you'd kind of go, oh, this is what I'll talk about. And then you go, oh, there you go. That's the article. I've got to say, as much as listicles get a, get a real bad rap and, uh, you know, as, as simplistic sort of articles or whatever, I, I find them very digestible... If I have a short time, I go, okay, 10 things. Oh, this is interesting. But I know how many points. And so if you've got me by the fourth one, I'll get to the 10th. Absolutely. I think there's such an easy target. But I, I, they can be entertaining. They can be fun. They can be snappy. And let's face it, we're not an audience that, that sits in the garden and reads for two hours anymore. It's something no. to read on the toilet. I have no problem being read on the toilet. Yeah, well, it's, it's my. Um, that's also where most of my writing gets done. Uh, but uh, that's. It's <laughs> wow, you are a dad. You yeah. just do anything the for some quiet. The circle of life, my right. friend. You wrote it on the toilet. I'll read it on the toilet, and vice versa. It's um. It yeah. I yeah. The the listicle, all that sort of stuff. But so you you'll pitch you'll pitch that to say a, an online publisher or a magazine, a print magazine. Correct. You pitch yep. those ideas. And then other times, like you're obviously, does it? So, do, do, is it your relationships with editors or whoever that they'll come to you and go, "Hey, Dave, we need a story on." Or Correct. Whatever. So it'll be fifty-fifty. They'll come up with an idea of, of of something. They'll know my style, my tone, and they'll kind of say, "Well, this is a good person to to tackle that." Uh, I do a lot of writing on on grooming for GQ Australia, in fact. So, oh wow, the uh, idea of writing about. Uh, you know, hair gels and moisturisers and aftershaves might might seem a bit weird, but when I took the gig, their brief to me was, Australian men are interested in this, but we need to approach it in a way with some levity and, and kind of take the piss and a bit tongue-in-cheek. And yeah. uh, those two worlds overlapped, and I've been doing that for about five years now, and it's, and it's great fun. I was going to say, I think the, the idea, like, there's this perception that Australian men don't want to... Don't want to do that sort of stuff. They do. Oh, it's changing. It's you just changing. don't want to seem like you're taking yourself too seriously. Absolutely. And you look at generationally. You know, people who uh, whose dads grew up using hair gel in the big. You know, it was the a bit cream. clear and brill cream. Yeah, and the the hair gel thing. Then your hair never moved, and then you got it from the pharmacy in a big clear tub. And now you look at men uh, who are moisturising. And men who are aware of things like sun protection—it's—it's it's been a huge demographic shift in Australia. Yeah, I am, um, and I got to say, I've been the beneficiary of your uh, your writing um, on those products. In that, I think I've had beard care products given to me from you, and uh, and some hair stuff too. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's a it's a growing market in Australia. The uh, the stats are actually that women's grooming and beauty has is is plateauing. But the men's market is rising exponentially now. Wow! And, uh, you you go you know you go to any department store. You walk through on a Saturday morning, and you'll see about a third of that that ground floor that used to be women's only is now men's. That's yeah, that's interesting. I feel like see because I 
I, as the, having, as I said, I've been the beneficiary. I like the fact that you've given me those products because I'll use them. But it would never have occurred to me to actually go buy, seek them out, buy them, seek advice on anything like that. It's just good to have, I, okay, I know Dave's my mate who can, if I need advice on this, I'll go to Dave. Yeah, you know what the funny thing is, and one of the prompters, as, as with so many other things, is male vanity. Guys who are now, you know, maybe f- late 40s, early 50s in the job market are losing out. On the to the guys who look younger and fresher, yeah. and people and guys are going, Jesus, what do I do now? So I've spent twenty years not taking care of myself, and uh, you know maybe I need to start lifting my game. You look at the ma- the male market for things like Botox, it's out of control. Oh really? Yeah, guys, uh, that is the fastest growing market for I things no like idea. Botox or plastic surgery and. You know, the love handles, the beach tits, all that kind of stuff, man. It's going, all the that, good stuff. Yeah, man. all the good stuff, man. So you do, I, I prefer you know, I prefer to earn love handles rather than get them put in, um, you know, implants. No, no, one's, no, 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 no one's getting love handles put in. They're getting them taken away. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bro. Sorry to break the news for you. The, the implants are boobs and calves. As the, long, as the, long pla- uh, the long-time advocate of the dad bod... Uh, which I've been wearing since I was about 16. Out and proud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, uh, oh, man. This, this, I, that, see, that sort of stuff baffles me because I, I don't – I suppose it's just down into what world you're exposed into. Yeah, and well, and it's becoming – you know, the, uh, the, the male body image thing is a, is a very interesting question because young men and older men are now becoming – it's now equal opportunity body shaming. Oh, Yeah. You know, you look at the, 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 the one of the, I saw a, a report very recently that the, the, I think it's the number one illegal drug used by men aged 18 to 25 is steroids. That's outrageous. Well, actually, I've noticed too, though, like going, because um, gigging, um, you know, you're out late at night. I remember when, when I was, when I was at 18, 19 going out a lot, I was, I've always been a, a solid bloke, always been a bigger bloke, um, but I was, when I went out, I was one of the bigger blokes just because I was naturally so. I'd never gym or whatever, played a bit of sport, but wasn't a big, so I never lifted weights particularly a lot or anything like that. But um, now I go out and I look around and the arms on just about every young bloke getting around. Yeah. And I'm like, this I isn't, these, this wasn't what guys looked like yeah. even years ago. And I don't know if ago. it's even fitness anymore. I've always, working in women's mags particularly, the, the question that... Uh, I've done a lot of that kind of agony uncle work over oh, the yeah. years, so women writing in. The question women want to know, what it boils down to in many cases is, is the guy I'm dating a douche? Is he a douche? And I, and I have the answer, ladies, if you, when you're listening. If he is a large but he wears a medium, he's a douche. That's yeah. all you need to know. Is he a douche? If you if you wondered enough to send a an email to a magazine... There's a pretty good answer yeah, there's too. A pretty good yeah, yeah, yeah. Chance. And the uh, the the boxing gloves hanging from the from the rearview mirror. I, oh, I don't think that's a yeah. good sign either. No, it's it's there's there are some real. Um, I mean, Ed Hardy was always a good flag. Yeah, yeah, and the guy who actually a guy he, he Ed Hardy, you know, wasn't a person. It was a design, It was a made up identity. A guy called Christian Odiger, who actually died last year, and he was he was buried in a rhinestone coffin. Because <laughs> he's classy. He is classy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. A rhinestone. No, I just made that up. But but you you that would be you, amazing. <laughs> I'd like to think, think that the so. rhinestones are on the inside. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and the the coffin had speakers and and played pitbull incessantly, <laughs> and a, a blue light underneath it. <laughs> yeah. Make it look like it was hovering. 
Oh, mate, that is going to have to be about time, I think. Thank you so much no, for doing this. It's been my this. pleasure. It's been lovely having a chat. <laughs> yes, excellent. Thank you. Um, before um, we go, do you want to plug your online, any of your social media stuff? Where oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just David Smead, uh, S-M-I-E-D-T on Twitter. Uh, davidsmead.com.au uh, search Google um, you get, you'll, you'll find me and uh, yeah I'd love to see anyone uh, who, who feels like coming and have a laugh at the shows uh, and thanks for having me and if you want any advice about whether your boyfriend's a douche where do they email that to? oh they, they, they can email me a care of Cleo magazine in Malaysia actually because oh, nice. Cleo doesn't exist here anymore but yeah I'll get back to you excellent thank you very much Dave thank you mate bye